If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Deconstructing PSYOPs, propaganda, and mainstream media garbage. Connecting the dots. You're with Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome to this week's Connecting the Dots on TNT. I am very, very happy to uh, to speak with three very, very interesting experts today dealing with different topics, ranging, always touching on the same thing, but ranging from deep history, geopolitics, economics, and a lot more. We're going to have Alex Craner on as our first guest, the fantastic geopolitical, geoeconomic analyst um, from Monaco, who will be going through a lot of different developments around the world, a lot of geopolitical developments, especially regarding the anniversary that we're currently living through. Uh, today is February 24th. It is the anniversary of the uh, the special military operation having been launched we're going to recapitulate and assess a little bit about uh, who actually, where we are now, two years later. Additionally, it is 10 years later, as I'm thinking about this, um, nearly the 10-year anniversary mark that we just passed, February 22nd, 2014, for those who remember, was the date that the Maidan, the, the regime change overseen by the CIA, the State Department in Ukraine, was affected fully. And so this is uh, there's a couple of different cycles, the, the wakes of a couple of waves that we're uh, we're currently surfing on right now. So, again, um, very, very auspicious uh, moment at the moment. Um, we're going to also discuss some of the, the issues pertaining to the the economic breakdown and some reasons to be, I think, reasonably hopeful, um, as Alex is, is quite good at both looking at the evil and also identifying points of weakness within the evil and also uh, points of goodness that humanity has uh, has always somehow been able to rally around throughout history. So we're going to discuss that. Um, we're going to talk to Dr. Amon McKinney, a good friend of mine and who has been a, a geopolitical analyst, a writer, and somebody who has worked for 40 years in China with major Chinese companies. Uh, he himself hails from the UK, from, Ir- from of Irish descent, from an Irish uh, revolutionary sort of family. And uh, Amon is something you're going to really find very interesting. And again, he is um, a good analyst as far as somebody who has been able to recognize a lot of the inside jobs, a lot of the lies that we've been faced with from uh, his early, you know, from his from his memories as a young man, as a young as a child. Even he, uh, he made a point that the murder of John F. Kennedy was something which really resonated deeply with him as a very meaningful point. You know, Kennedy himself had an Irish heritage. His family um, had a connection with that. And so there was always a sense that something evil had taken over America um, with that murder. And his uh, his radar, as he's described to me, is, was always on, uh, whether it was why we were going into Vietnam, why Iran-Contra was happening, what was really going on in the 90s um, or up to 9-11. So we're going to discuss some of these things. And we're going to end uh, as our third guest is Richard Cook. He's a uh, an NSA, uh, a NASA whistleblower. He's somebody who's worked in the civil service since the Carter administration in Washington and uh, has worked through the Treasury Department, through a variety of, of sections within the uh, the U.S. bureaucracy. He's had his good a good finger on the pulse 
But unlike many elements of uh, the Washington bureaucracy groupings, uh, he was disgusted by the filth that we've come to identify as the deep state. And so Richard has a uh, a track record of being a truth teller, and uh, I've been very impressed by him. He's put out some um, some very important material uh, in a book called Our Country Then and Now that I've been quite impressed by. As myself being a historian, I was a, I find it very rare to encounter somebody who's been able to both identify the evil that has been done by the United States going back to the earliest days of its birth, but also at the same time, not throw out the baby with the bathwater and recognize this powerful anti-imperial goodness, this tradition embedded embedded in the best of the constitutional documents, the Declaration of the of Independence, the Constitution, and many of the, the greatest leaders who usually get shot at, usually don't, you, you, you can recognize them by one, their fruits while they live as far as policy actions that uplift people to a better way, empower the nation to stand on its own two feet outside of the influence of private banking operations or British East India Company global corporate impulses. And usually you'll also see and recognize these uh, figures throughout many, many generations since 1776 as not having lived through their presidencies or vice presidencies. Uh, because they were unwilling to break with their conscience and what they knew to be true. So, like I was mentioning, Richard is somebody who has uh, has really exemplified an ability to walk that line. Not easy to do. Not easy to do. And as, again, speaking on, on that note, um, as somebody who's done a lot of work trying to recompile a more truthful telling of history, what I've found is that most schools, whether they're historians of the United States, of Canada, of, of European, Australian, whatever part of the world that they focus on, um, one, they make the mistake of being specialist in a certain region without thinking about the global chemistry that any region of the world is a part of. And that's the thing. If you want to think about truth, true history, you do have to think about um, context. Context means in, in space, meaning all of the world and in time, right? In terms of as much of the past that is knowable since we are all living in the wake of the past and we are all living in history. The, there will be future generations. The history doesn't end with us. Napoleon was wrong. Après moi, c'était pas la déluge. After me, it was not the flood. Um, George Bush, the end of history uh, fanatics around the neocon apparatus of the project for, new, for a new American century who followed Francis Fukuyama who believed also that the 1990s were the end of history were also wrong history is continuing whether they like it or not it's just this egocentrism and so we have to think like the like the oligarchy thinks and here i'm talking about the actual grand strategists who are who have been trying to um induce humanity to accept willfully a system of culture and political life and norms of feudalism that would not differentiate us in any qualitative way from other forms of animals, um, creatures you would see in a zoo or maybe that you would have like as a dog that's happy just being a domesticated animal, getting scraps off the table and just being happy. That's what the oligarchy, all they've ever really wanted with us is just to have human dogs that are just happy knowing their role as intrinsically inferior to the higher species, the higher bloodlines. That's all they've ever wanted. Is that so much to ask? Well, obviously it is. According to every human being that's ever uh, spat in the face of tyranny and fought for freedom, yeah, that was a little bit too much to ask. And I think that's a little bit too much to ask all of us. 
But I'm saying this to get across that the oligarchy has always thought global. This is where the Venetian oligarchy, and I'm kind of rambling, I know that I'm rambling a little bit, but I figure, you know, I've got some some interesting ideas that I've been rolling around in my mind. And since uh, we're just waiting for Alex Craner to uh, resolve some technical issues, it might be a worthwhile thing to just share a few of these ponderings and uh, let, let you, the audience out there, chew on them and see what uh, we can get out of them. And it'll also be, be useful when we when we do go into listening to uh, Dr. Not Dr. Uh, Richard Cook. But now the oligarchy, um, these this idea of grand strategy of oligarchs, of oligarchism, they were once centered before Britain became an empire. And this is actually something I was, I was speaking to Richard uh, Cook about. So he's actually uh, sensitive to that, as is Amon, as is Alex. You're going to talk to three guests who are actually sensitive to some things that most people tend to ignore. Before the oligarchy took control of the British Empire, or the British, British Isles, constituting what became the British Empire, utilizing private banking like the Bank of England or uh, the British East India Company as a global corporation, which was global. It wasn't Mediterranean. It wasn't British. It extended all the way from India, hence the name, um, China, Asia, um, all the way through to the Americas, Africa, and beyond. So it was a global corporatist empire, right? That's how that's how one has to recognize the nature of whether it was the Dutch Empire that had a bit of a rival, a bit of a tiff, but eventually effectively merged, becoming the Anglo-Dutch Empire uh, in the 17th century or any empire. But before that, you had the Venetian Empire because at the end of the day, the uh, the same families, the same structures um, sort of migrate whenever they they parasitically destroy a host area and make themselves thus vulnerable to uh, to a variety of things. The wars that they create often spin out of control because empire can only create wars to better control their victims. But wars are very messy. Sometimes they, they blow up even in the faces of those trying to manipulate them. We saw we saw this in the case of World War One and World War Two, where many uh, children, family members of this inner oligarchy, this this high level managerial class ended up getting sent to the front lines and got killed. And here we're talking children from very high level classes of the oligarchy. And the oligarchy themselves don't fully know the outcome. Sometimes it doesn't benefit them. So we had this with Venice. In the case of Venice, they had made an 800-year career as the center of global finance, global bullion. We had the innovation of banking um, from the Banco Siena. The, uh, the Venetian banks were some of the most virulent banks that used Lombard families, the Lombard bankers. Uh, to carry out usury, economic warfare, uh, finance, all sides of every war, and usually just get people to fight over little things that differentiated them, whether language differences, whether uh, different rituals in your Christianity, whatever. Whatever is a difference, you can fight. It's territory, you know, my grandpa says this area is uh, is part of my little, little mercenary kingdom, and, and your grandpa says the opposite, so let's fight. And the, the Venetians were always happy to fund all sides. So this this got the better of them. But to get the, it wasn't that they were just doing this in Europe. The Venetians were also, and this is according to amazing research by Webster Tarplay from the 1980s and many others, Paul Gallagher from EIR, many others have, have demonstrated this thoroughly, were utilizing the the, the Khans, the Mongols. You know, the, the, Venetian, the, the fact that the Mongol hordes from uh, Mon what, what's today Mongolia the Khans were able to emerge as such a powerhouse. And in a very quick time, starting in the 1250s, 
overpower every country that they, every culture that they interface with. Um, all the way through Russia, most of Russia was conquered. India, Persia destroyed Baghdad. The libraries, the Renaissance libraries of Baghdad and the, the Islamic Renaissance were destroyed, annihilated by the, the Genghis Khan and his heirs. China was subdued, taken under the control of the Khans of India. Same thing. The Mughals came out of that and they came all the way to Eastern Europe, to Hungary. Um, so we have here a uh, a problem where people think of this thing as being a self-contained power power base that just arose unto itself burning down villages killing everybody in its wake and not realizing that it this was done through the support logistical military intelligence support of the venetians the only power grouping of europe that were given full access to trade corridors dominated by the mongols this is what marco polo was doing advising Ogedai Khan. This is what his father was doing as part of a long line of Venetian high-level operatives. They were not just explorers. Those were high-level intelligence operatives utilizing the the Mongol uh, hordes, which were a very pagan uh, grouping, um, in the same way that the CIA and MI6 have cultivated and used uh, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, in our recent age, just as a weapon to destroy nations and cultures that you don't like, that are troublesome to empire. So that's part of it. That's also where we have the uh, the growth and the utilization of unreconstructed neo-Nazi fanatics in Ukraine, in even uh, Georgia and Lithuania and uh, in a variety of Eastern Euro European countries. This is where the, the grooming by the CIA, by MI6 of unreconstructed Nazis has been, has been, we found these groupings used like battering rams to destroy countries and to create geopolitical destabilizations on the for for things that these groups in Al Qaeda, in uh, the the Ukrainian Kiev based Nazis, they don't even understand how they're being used. They think that they have d a divine mission of some sort. Um, so that's the thing. This is how we're being played, and so we have to think like the oligarchy. Think better than the oligarchy. Think global. Think in terms of context. Think in terms of global chemistry. And I guarantee you, if you do that, you will understand how people like Vladimir Putin are thinking, like Lavrov, like Xi Jinping, you will have a better ability to think like people who are actually utilizing the power of the sovereign nation state with an understanding of historical dynamics and the nature of the beast to do battle. So with that said, we're going to go to a quick break. I've just been informed that Alex Craner has resolved all issues technically and will be joining us after we return on TNT, your news talk. TNT's Chris Smith. You know, there's nothing humane in the boat people, people smuggler trade. Nothing in you, nothing humane about it or compassionate about it at all. This has always been one of the great delusions of the left. And if they didn't learn that lesson from the tragedy of the uh, Rudd and Gillard government, when over a thousand people drowned on, on the oceans to the north of Australia, if they didn't learn that lesson about a thousand people, including women and children, drowning. Well, they're very slow learners and they're bound to repeat that mistake. But that's because their ideology superseded the practicalities of the issue, right? Yeah, absolutely. Albanese from the left was always ideologically bound, almost fanatical, hysterical, about saying if you don't believe in taking all the refugees, then you're some sort of barbarian, a racist, a bigot from Western Sydney. Chris Smith on today's News Talk TNT.
Well, I want to say this, and I'm going to say it just once. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back to the second segment of the first hour of Connecting the Dots. As promised, the long-awaited guest, my regular recurring guest and friend, Alex Craner, has made it into the digital space here. Alex, welcome to Connecting the Dots, or welcome back to Connecting the Dots. Glad that uh, you could make it make it with us today. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I want to express my profound thanks to Windows, which decided to upgrade my Windows um, while I was trying to log into the Zoom call. And then after they did that, then they ran me through the whole thing, hustling me to install Windows 11 instead of Windows 10. So, uh, yeah, that was that was all worth it anyway. So it's uh, <laughs> the well, world you broke is a through that window. You, you broke through that window and you got into our TNT house. Very well. Yes. Good. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just I was just uh, sort of using waxing eloquent a little bit while uh, while you were you were struggling with the the technical issues and uh, the issue came up as I was I was opening up thinking that okay well today is actually the the second anniversary of the special military operation uh, which began February twenty fourth twenty twenty two, um, and it's also additionally the ten year sort of I mean we just passed the ten year anniversary mark of the February uh, 2014, February 22nd, uh, finalization of the regime change that was the Maidan, not the, uh, whatever they call it, the, the the March for Victory, as Christia Freeland calls it or something. They're, they've given some romantic name. The Revolution anyway, of Dignity. The Revolution of Dignity. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. The Revolution of Dignity. Yeah. <laughs> um, God, it's disgusting. The, 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 the branding of these things, eh? Um, so anyway... I was hoping that that might be a good place to get your take uh, opening up our discussion today. Um, where where are we now? What is your assessment of was did the did those who initiated this thing in 2014 or even before that, have they benefited? Have they gotten what they expected? What about uh, since 2022? What what what's your assessment of uh, of the trajectory at the moment? I think it's quite obvious, but I, 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 I believe it's really worth keeping in mind that some 24 or so years ago the same the same gang of people um proclaimed the project for the new american century uh they were preparing full spectrum dominance they were preparing to eliminate every little um every possible rival they were talking about how the United States should every few years should take some shitty little country and slam it against the wall just to show to the world that they mean business and so on and so forth. And here we are 24 years later or so. And I think that they are now light years farther away from having achieved their objectives than than they were when they started off. They started with the unipolar order and pretty much everything they touched turned to crap. And so has their ad excellent adventure in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I think that even uh, I, I don't think that anybody anymore imagines that they can prevail in Ukraine, and the the stakes of the game could not have been higher. So this is this is a summary defeat for Western imperialism. It's pretty much game over, I would say. Because, you know, we have to keep in mind, what was the objective? It wasn't just to uh, pres preserve freedom and democracy in Ukraine. It was also to weaken and partition Russia. Uh, 
also what's very important to keep in mind remember um ukrainians were not interested in going to war with russia ukrainian vote ukrainians voted overwhelmingly for vladimir zelensky because he was he was promising peace with eastern ukraine he was promising normalization with russia that's why people put him in the office right that's why they made him the president mm -hmm. and uh, now the whole thing has been turned on its head if russia fell by any chance if they managed to install some navalny nemt of uh, juan guaido type person person 100 percent it would it would trigger a wave of anti-chinese hysteria in russia mm. and then the russian military might a few years down the road would be aimed at china they would use russia as a proxy against China to destroy China, because their objective is to dominate the Eurasian landmass completely. And so they have to eliminate their, their rivals, which is now Russia and China. But then later you can uh, more easily deal with Iran. But this is why, you know, China has been so uh, completely supportive of Russia because they understand this. And so I think that in uh, in Ukraine they have experienced a summary defeat. It's it's only a question of time. Uh, what we see now are just uh, the the imperial proxy flailing in desperation and agony. And it's only a matter of time when peace will have to be concluded on Russia's terms. Mm. No, it's it's a very very uh, sobering point of analysis that you just delivered. And I was just listening to a Christine Amanpour uh, interview with uh, a, a Ukrainian MP who was saying that we are willing to go to war with Iran or with China uh, to support our American allies because they have supported us consistently sure. this whole time. And I mean, the, the level of this thing just being psych like we're just watching this cycle psychotically spinning out of control that d despite all of the points and evidence of losses that this is over they need to like save face and like get back to the negotiating table to get something they can't do it it's like there's there's a psychological break or blockage um like um, they've lost zaporizhia and, and kerson and now Divka and it's like Crimea a long time ago and despite all of the evidence to the contrary there's something that's propelling them forward i don't understand exactly why this where this is coming from uh, th th there are a few explanations, you know, but along the way, they have committed many, many crimes, real crimes. You know, they're protected now because the structure of power in the West is such that they are, uh, let's call it, they're shielded by the, in the, in the, by the political structure. But if, you know, uh, a defeat would change uh, the political landscape and they would have to answer for their crimes so mm. you know they're almost stuck like in a gambler's ruin where you know you're 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 going to keep gambling with any small stakes that you can scrape or steal or lie about uh in the hopes that you can turn the situation around that if you just keep doing the same thing that at some point some miracle is going to occur and it's going to uh, redeem you mm. uh whereas Admitting defeat is not only geostrategic defeat, it's political defeat at home. And then, you know, you're going to have to face justice. You're going to have, have to face the music before your own uh, judicial system, before your own voters. And I think that that's going to mean a prison term for many of the people who are behind this project. And, you know, uh, we're going to be talking about Victoria Nuland and the whole merry gang of neocons. 
uh, Joe Biden, uh, John Kerry, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Susan Rice, yeah, as a whole long line of people who will probably have to answer for this criminally. Yeah, well, this, this brings up the issue that I know you've you've written and spoken about quite at length. Uh, there's there seems to be a very visceral um, concern on the part of the 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 various spokesman for the oligarchist interest of uh, Alex Soros, uh, Hillary, obviously, so many of them, they're freaked out by the prospect, the very possibility of somebody like a Donald Trump. Uh, I'm obviously not, I said somebody like, like Donald Trump specifically, uh, taking back some form of influence in the United States uh, that could overturn many of the things that have been put into, into place over decades and decades of building up this rules-based international order. Now, if Trump did come in, so I, one, I'd like to get your thoughts on why are they actually afraid of Trump? I hear a lot of people saying that Trump is a controlled opposition, blah, blah, blah. I don't believe it, but I'd like to get your thoughts. Number two, it does seem like there would be a more positive relationship between the United States and Russia. Um, would that also play into an anti-China axis, uh, as you just said, or would that be a different type of foreign policy pro-US-Russia relationship or more friendly U.S.-Russia relationship that would not be antagonistic to China as some would like to have it? No, I think I think it wouldn't be necessarily antagonistic to China. You know, United States can perfectly get along with China and, uh, uh, you know, negotiate and discuss issues. And because there's a lot there's a lot to gain for both for, from by both sides through simply constructive cooperation and trade. You know, uh, there's a lot we can buy from China, and there's a lot we can sell to China. You know, it's a it's a massive economic superpower. So, if you're if you're a, if you're an entrepreneur in the United States, that's the best case scenario for you because you know your country opens to a to a massive market where maybe you can sell something and make some money. the The problem is that this is not about entrepreneurs. This is about collateral, and collateral matters only to bankers. Okay, it doesn't it doesn't matter to you and me, it doesn't matter to ordinary businessmen, it doesn't matter to mom and pop shops, entrepreneurs, it matters only to bankers. And if and so um yeah, going back to your or, original question, we can we can get to the question of collateral later because it's really important. Uh but no, I think that you know, uh, Russia is uh, a natural ally to the United States. And it should be an ally, or or, or at, at at the very least uh, a friend, and not not a not a a foe to the United States, and this is how it was while while the United States was independent. So, in in during the Civil War in the eighteen sixties, uh, the U United States was uh, basically it was it was an attempt by European powers led by the British Empire to partition the United States and turn it into a weak uh two or more weak client states so we see that today you know if they cannot keep biden in power if they cannot keep uh, the same political faction the, the democratic national congress controlling the levers of powers in in the united states then they're going to try to partition the united states try with the texas succession secession or whichever way so either this power is going to be subservient to the british empire which if that surprises people, yes, the British Empire is still undead. Or it has to be eliminated because if China <clears throat> and Russia and the United States 
create this axis of uh, a multi new multipolar order and become the guarantors of security for for a long term future, then the uh, the British imperial uh, network is is facing the wall. It's the end, and the Russians are coming for them because you know the the battle in Ukraine is merely the 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 military conflict. There's going to be a legal conflict once Russia mm. prevails. I'm pretty certain that they're go that one of their next steps is going to be to to pressure Western governors to repeal the Magnitsky Act, because Magnitsky Act creates a like a like a barrier a, a legal barrier between Russia and the West, and the reason is because the West Western financial uh, interests have pillaged Russia during the 1990s, literally hundreds of billions of dollars of assets, hundreds of paintings, sculptures, you name it was all stolen from Russia. Russians have hundreds of uh, research, uh, how do you call it, investigation files that need to go to uh, Western judicial centers like uh, London, New York, Cyprus, uh, British Virgin Islands, Switzerland, and so forth. But the Magnitsky Act creates a barrier, making it impossible for Russians to pursue their assets and to find who their ultimate beneficial owners are, because that's going to lead to names. You know, we're talking about them. It. Mm -hmm. the ju the judicial discovery process will lead us ultimately to the names and i bet you there's going to be a uh, certain jacob rothschilds on those on those lists and uh, george soros's and and people like that and then yeah. it's going to be on record you know no more no more hiding in the shadows absolutely and you know since you've brought up um the issue of magnitsky and this obviously you know we're we're living just a, a little over a, a week um, since the the death of Navalny, um, Navalny has more than a little bit in common, I think, with uh, poor Sergei Magnitsky. Um, and uh, I think that there's cer certain elements of intelligence, certain Western interests that had a, a, a hold on a lot of these figures. Nemtsov even came up very briefly. There's there's a long list of um, yeah. of people who who played the corruption game ultimately used up their usefulness alive and found themselves more useful dead to their handlers. And you've written a book, very difficult to acquire, unfortunate book these days on Bill Browder <laughs> yes. and uh, and the origins of the Magnitsky Act. Um, could you say a little bit about what you see as common between the current between mid I'm, I'm or do you think that i'm right in saying that there is something very very similar in magnitsky and uh uh, uh navalny um as far as what what control them and how they've been used or and also number one uh number two uh what was that really about what did bill browder actually do what is bill browder uh for the last five minutes before our next break yeah, so uh, Sergei Magnitsky and uh, Alexei Navalny had something important in common, and that's that they had the same boss, Bill Browder. Okay, the difference is that uh, Alexei Navalny was uh, was a thug. He was he was uh, he was a uh, he was borderline criminal, embezzler, uh, extreme right nationalist, and a traitor to his country. Sergei Magnitsky wasn't necessarily Sergei Magnitsky was an accountant, even though Bill Browder says that he's a lawyer. He he was he never uh, did get his law degree. He never practiced law. He's not a lawyer, but he was an accountant, and he uh, worked for Bill Browder to help him. 
he wasn't directly employed by Bill Browder, but he worked for him as a as an advisor to help him dodge taxes in Russia. And in that sense, you know, uh, they've done they they were uh, they illegally dodged taxes, but at the time everybody else did too. You know, it was it was you know it was kind of like Ukraine today. It was a mess. It was extremely corrupt, but they got busted, and then Sergei Magnitsky ended up in prison. How he died in prison is a great mystery. Uh, but, you know, the same way as Navalny died, it does seem that they have ways of, uh, uh, you know, I listened to some discussions with Larry Johnson and uh, and uh, Ray McGovern, and Larry Johnson was saying how these things can be done. You know, you pay some money, you, you slip in the poison, or you you pay other prisoners to, you know, Mm. get the get the dirty deed, deed done so there is a there is a founded suspicion that it might have been done by agents of mi6 or cia uh, both men are mo much more useful to the western uh, powers dead than they would have been alive yeah that's clear yeah did you, did you hear about the uh the navalny wife hypothesis no 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 i have oh, well you know i know that she's now taken over uh yep. which is nice because uh kind of good money is going to come with this from Western donors. And then, uh, you know, now that he's dead, she's she's free to enjoy her life with her new boyfriend, which he, she, whom she was together with even before Magnitsky died. Ooh, yeah, she I didn't, didn't know. Yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. a she new element there. there. No, because I just... A, she I has heard... a boyfriend and there's photographs of her with her boyfriend that predate uh, Navalny's death. So, you know, now she's free to be out in the open with that. And, you know gets all this money, friendship from Ursula von der Leyen and hugs and kisses. Wonderful. <laughs> right, right. A little starlet. She gets to, she's probably gonna get to be on Vogue with her own Vogue photo shoot soon too. It's Oh yeah, you uh, bet. <laughs> I don't wanna I mean I I was just watching a um or not it was it was actually a, an article first um that uh, that brought up how she had paid a mysterious visit. She was one of the last visitors who uh before going to the Munich Security Conference to uh beg for more money which he ended up getting quite a bit and also some security guarantees and deals with with the french friends uh, french the french and the germans um but she had given him like a box full of medicines and snacks and then got yes, on a plane head yes. down to uh, uh, so that's very suspicious obviously because uh he he did have health issues he he was mm -hmm. a he did have health problems and so you know she took him medicine and and snacks well, who's to say that somebody didn't give her medicines that were tampered with? Maybe she, yeah. she she wouldn't even have to necessarily know about it, but she was able to deliver them since she was his wife, right? Mm -hmm. So that's quite a you know that's if I were an investigator uh, investigator, I would definitely uh, try that hypothesis. Yep, that would be so. Um, right now, well, actually, you know what? Before I go into another question, let's do a quick commercial break, and then we'll come back to finish this off with. Uh, Connecting the dots on TNT News Talk. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. You all know Dr. Jill Biden. Of course, she's the first lady. Here she is humiliating herself while talking to Hispanic Americans. As distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. <laughs> so say it with me. A brain surgeon, apparently she's not. But she is a very selfish woman. She's the reason, I believe, 
that Joe Biden is being pressured to run for another term. Obviously, he can't handle it. I think she's selfish, and I'm not alone in thinking that. Kennedy of Fox News recently said the same thing. But Dr. Jill has gotten so addicted to the glitz Mm -hmm. and the free dresses. And maybe they're not free. Yeah. They're very expensive dresses. Yeah. Uh, But the spotlights, the state dinners, Mm -hmm. the private jet. I know it's Air Force One. Yeah. But, you know, the the filthy, dirty people who fly Southwest, they're not on Air Force One. She's got a house full of servants. Uh Uh-huh. They cater to her whims. It's called elderly abuse. And I find Dr. Jill Biden guilty. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines ready to serve. Healing. Nurturing. Rescuing. Protecting. Inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you, the Nonprofit Alliance. You're listening to Connecting the Dots with Matt Arendt on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. All right, we're back for the third segment of the first hour where we are continuing our discussion with Alex Kreiner, getting his assessments on where we are as a human species in the midst of a giant systemic uh, change. There's a there, We're living through a big change. Now, some people say, Alex, that we're going into a, a potential like a recession that um, – that it, that that uh, ultimately we could feasibly go back to the pre-COVID. You know, we we can go, we can make it back to a normal if we just say no to giving up our our freedoms and and stuff. We'll just we could just give a, a Nuremberg trial to the bad guys and and just we'll go back to the way things were in 2018, 19, and and things are going to be okay. Other people say that this is like a systemic oh a, a big systemic change, and that wasn't normal. That, that that was actually what we thought was normal was actually not normal and that we need a different way of thinking that deals with um, valuing the right things, having production, having manufacturing, which we lost already over decades and decades of deregulation, consumerism. And we need to to go back to what should be a very different type of thing. I, I think I'm partial to the second one. I think you are, too. Um, how do you assess it right now? What, do, do you think of this as as like um, what what type of moment in history are we living in at the moment? Uh, gosh, I think that we are at the at the point of discontinuation of a system that's been going on in various guises for more than two thousand years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes back to it goes back to fifth, uh, sixth century BC Greece. It metastasized through the Roman Empire. You know, it was the Greek bankers who went who went to Rome and started these these uh, big banking houses. Um, Roman Empire was uh, one of the purest and largest experiments in history in unrestrained oligarchic rule. And we've had, uh, you know, in Western Europe, there's been always an obsession with uh, recreating the Holy Roman Empire for centuries. Uh, And I think that this is, you know, 
for people to understand what em- what an empire is it's never it's never a national thing it's always a it's always a a product of of oligarchic rules uh, and this oligarchy kind of infects a nation like a parasite and uses that nation's wealth military power political power diplomatic power to build uh, an empire of colonies where it and then it it takes uh it extracts resources from those colonies and turns them into financialized flow this is what rome was and then you know rome fell but then the catholic church remained as a as a kind of ghost of the undead roman empire which then got resurrected after the crusades through venice the dutch empire and then finally british empire and we can trace the we can trace the evolution of law and uh, ideology and uh, then you know maybe with british empire it gets its fullest expression because it was the empire on which the sun never set and uh, it practically swallowed most of the most of the earth we know how they ruled it was divide and conquer uh, you know rivers of blood everywhere uh, poverty everywhere not only uh, through the throughout the colonies uh, but also at home because you know if we if we if you read books by Upton Sinclair and Charles Dickens you know that even at even when the British Empire w- was at its peak that the people in in England were living in squalor most of them other than the small elite and this has always been the case and now we have this, this as well you know it's the same model of governance you have a, 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 a small segment of the population in the United States and elsewhere in the West who live in incredible opulence, who are massively wealthy. And then you have the rest who are slowly losing the game. Their their standards of living are, are imploding. You see cities uh, across the West, especially the United States, uh, you know, di- dis- being dismantled, people sleeping in the streets, people, you know, uh, going to the bathroom in the streets, taking drugs, uh, infrastructure imploding. This this has been always, always, always the uh, the symptoms of the unrestrained rule by a narrow oligarchy. And so this mm-hmm. is coming to an end. Um, a different model of governance is, is taking over. And for the first time in history, I think, the the military powers that are opposed to this model of governance are... Uh, are actually more powerful um, and and better organized, and they actually understand what they're up against. And then at the same time, the the domestic populations at home are are better aware of what the problem is and where the enemy is than they ever were in the past. So it's not it, it's become very very difficult for them to control the narrative, which is one thing that they had going for them for the last two thousand years. They were able to control the narrative. Mm. And then people who thought otherwise were, you know, a, a very small fringe handful of loonies that, you know, you could silence easily, you know, like putting Ezra Pound in the in the psychiatric asylum and saying like, oh, this is crazy. But now there's a like a solid percentage of the population who actually understands these things and who are actively pushing back. And I just wrote a I just wrote an article last week about this because it's making a real difference. It's making a real difference, and uh, I, I, I put in a few examples that I found find fascinating. But one thing that I didn't put in is the phenomenon of um, uh, soft quitting or quiet quitting. 
you know, which is a, a phenomenon where, where people go to work, they do their jobs, but they do the absolute minimum to keep themselves on the payroll. They don't go above and beyond. They don't go to meetings that are, uh, mm. you know, non, non-mandatory. They don't stay up late. They don't come into the office early um, and things like that. And it's, 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 it's like a slow rot at the heart of the system. And uh, according to a Gallup poll from two years ago, from 22, it seems that as much as 50% of the em- employed population of the United States are quiet quitters, which means that they don't care. They're just, they're just going to work co- to collect their paycheck and then they leave. Mm-hmm. And this is very bad because, you know, you need, you need an organization, you need people to be motivated, you know, you need people to want to do better, to improve things, to take it above and beyond and, you know, innovate and improve things. This is not happening. So yeah, there's right. like a there's like a rot at the heart of the whole system. Yeah, no, that that that's the sort of the lifeblood of any system is like you just exactly, said, yeah. the part the willful participation and excellence of the members of that society. And if they voluntarily tune out, uh, check out, then that the the very basis of that system's existence disappears. It dissipates, as you just pointed it, out. It, yeah, it becomes the whole system becomes lethargic. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just atrophies, um, and the 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 essay in in question that you're re- you're referencing is a fantastic piece that people could read on Trend Compass. You're on your Substack uh, called "Humanity: Where Conspiracies Go to Die." Right, that's the 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 essay you're referring to, yeah. and I loved it. I shared it with with everybody that I know. It was a really really fun, uh, insightful piece, and and in it you really zero in on the the paradox of empire, of 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 the types of conspiracies that require um, secrecy, hierarchy. Um, It requires that most people who participate in the game don't understand what the game is doing, but it requires competence. It requires managers, technocrats, people who can manage things as specialists to maintain an effectiveness of, of, of getting closer to the goal, even if they don't know what the goal is, right? Um, but that then is the paradox. You you beautifully outline that as soon as you have competent people who know how to do their jobs and do their jobs well, which the empire needs, well, then you tend yeah. to also have competent thinkers who are more uh, disciplined in their minds, who are unwilling to go along with actions that destroy their conscience or hurt their nation or their children. So all of a sudden yeah. you get this uh breakdown this this incredible thing we've seen it throughout history as examples but you give a few a few case studies to say almost as if to say you don't believe me you think i'm just like philosophizing here well check out these concrete case studies and i loved your concrete examples um maybe you could go through a few of those just for the the listeners today yeah Um, yeah so i I, it's very important to understand this because you know that people think that with money you can motivate anybody to do anything but as it turns out uh, people actually care about uh, about justice and about ethics and about trust and uh, about the meaning and purpose of their work. And so the first example that came to my attention was when, uh, you know, when they had those, uh, when the Pentagon created this drone assassination program. And then it turned out that these, the, the, you know, like they, they trained these pilots to, to fly drones all over the world and to, and to kill people. 
And then it turned out that these pilots were not really very excited about killing people that they didn't know for reasons that they didn't know, and they would protest. And the you know the the, the hierarchy would tell them just uh, follow your orders and and shut up. And that didn't work. And so they started having a tremendous turnover among these pilots who would check out, who would say, uh, obj- con- conscient- who would uh, uh, play moral injury or PSTP, yeah. And so they would they were they were quitting in droves or refusing to carry out orders. And so now, you know, became a real problem for the Pentagon. And so now they talk, they thought like, okay, uh, we'll try to work out AI systems to to for for targeting. And so they started talking to Google, they created this project Maven, and and Google was going to create AI solutions for these exact purposes. And then the engineers at Google flipped out and like a dozen of them quit immediately. And the others uh, started a petition uh, to to say uh, no, you we will not be doing on this. And they practically there was a mutiny in, at Google, and uh, and then this got even bigger proportion because these some of these petitions ended up beyond Google going, including like the Tech Workers of America, I think is the organization, mm-hmm. and they they demanded that neither Google nor Amazon nor, nor any of these tech companies work IBM, with IBM, uh, yeah. IBM work on applications that are for killing people. And then they tried to like, oh, no, 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 no. Of course, this is not going to be for killing people. This is going to be for dropping vitamins from the sky to help them grow healthy and strong. But, you know, people didn't believe them. And so they they refused. And so this was a real, real issue. And I think that didn't they I think they didn't get anywhere with it. And then there was also the example of uh, NSA. And we got we got uh, in, in in a Washington Post article a few years ago that NSA was losing hundreds of their best software engineers and hackers because they were not agreeing with the agenda. You know, so there they are. They have a job for life. They are well paid, and they say, "I'm not doing this." And then the paradox is that usually it's your most capable people who refuse cooperation because they know their worth and they know that they can get a better job tomorrow somewhere else. So they say like, what, you want me to uh, follow people so that you can pop them later? Uh, and they say no. And so they were they were losing hundreds of, 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 of their best talent. And this keeps happening again and again. I, I came across many of these examples. Obviously nobody advertises these things because they all want to project themselves as like an unstoppable force where everything is super sophisticated and organized and precise and accurate. But the reality is very different. And then as it turns out, because people are conscientious, ethical, you know, on the whole, not every single one, and they believe in 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 doing good and having a good purpose and good uh, meaning to their to their job, they very often fail to cooperate with these nefarious agendas. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think that the, and there's so many other case studies, too. We, I mean, we've just seen such a, a massive array of whistleblowers, people who are just unwilling to to go along, uh, to get along on every every point that really, really matters here. Um, so as you pointed out, as soon as you have people who are competent, can th- that means that they can use their minds. That means they appreciate the the quality of their minds and that means that they can i detect where things are going because part of using our minds is seeing and foreseeing the consequences of our actions animated by conscience that's part of exactly. just being a healthy competent person so i really yeah i really appreciate that 
uh, that very, very clear, clear ana- analysis. Um, this gets me at another question, though, that touches on what you were just saying about the collapse of the Roman Empire and that there are very many, many similarities, obviously, uh, to this uh, this breakdown we're going through and the need for a uh, a realignment of our values, why we are, what the purpose of, of our of humanity is. Um, was there anything that Rome, in your assessment, could have done to have avoided the calamitous breakdown that it did suffer from through its own um, immorality, normalized stupidity, corruption? I mean, something like 240 days of the year I was reading were were, hol- were fest- festival days in the capital. Like, that's a lot of decadence and going to circus yeah. and watching bloodbaths for pleasure. Um, while you ignore the fact that you're just rapaciously using more slaves, making more enemies as the, as the empire is getting more overbloated and extending itself very similar to today's kind of decline. Was there anything you think that could have been done, um, to Uh, avoid that collapse in three minutes? Uh, Very, very (laughs) easy thing, uh, curb the excesses of the oligarchy. And this Mm -hmm. has been, this has been attempt because, you know, as so, uh, what what we call Roman Republic, which came after the the overthrow of the last king in 509 BC, is that you know by eliminating the king, the sovereign, uh, the oligarchy took over, and the oligarchy ruled without any restraint and very quickly, practically from the day they overthrew the the, the king, the the Rome started going in in decline. And then you had uh, many of these uh, patrician from these patrician families, people like uh, the Gracchi brothers, uh, Catiline, uh, Julius Caesar, who tried to reform the system, who tried to put curbs on the behavior of the oligarchs. Uh, ha- had they been successful at that, I think it would have turned the situation around. And uh, yeah. unfortunately, uh, the the Senate uh, and, and a very small clique in the Senate, maybe twenty or thirty people, ran these death squads. And as soon as so- they as soon as they said that somebody was aspiring to kingship, that is, curb their power, they would just assassinate them along with hundreds and thousands of their supporters. But the best case studies of 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 curbing the power of the oligarchs is Russia, exactly, because during the nineteen nineties. Russia was run by a group of oligarchs, the most powerful of whom were the seven bankers, who were all trustees of Western financial interests. And Russia was run down like every place under oligarchy, including Rome, including Victorian Britain and so forth. And then came in Vladimir Putin, who uh, almost as soon as he won his first election, he set down all the oligarchs and he said, okay, you get to keep your 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 illegally uh, acquired wealth, but pay your taxes correctly, treat your people well, and stay out of politics. And so he, he insisted on this. They tried to challenge him. A uh, couple of them had uh, legal battles with the Russian government. Um, in the end, the oligarchs had to make a peace with the fact that they were subservient. They were subordinate mm-hmm. to the political. In the West, All right. On that place. on that note, on that note, we've got 30 seconds, so we're gonna exit this segment. But due to a technical glitch by our next guest, Dr. Iman McKinney, who was supposed to come on, Alex, you have been so gracious as to continue this dialogue, so we can continue this after a short uh, news yeah. break, and we're gonna come right back on TNT, new, uh, today's news talk TNT.